Please take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 11. Reading together this morning, Romans chapter 11, verses 7 through 16. This is God's word, Paul writes. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. A question for you this morning. Are you an anti-Semite? I say, what's a Semite? Well, a Semite is, technically speaking, anyone descended from Noah's son, Shem. But in modern usage, right, we refer to primarily the Jews as Semites. And so the question, are you an anti-Semite? I hope that everyone here this day who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ would, would categorically deny that question, would say, of course I'm not. And I assume this morning that, that you are seeking to kill the sin of racism in your heart in whatever form it might find itself. I assume that you're not painting swastikas on Jewish businesses and, and homes. I assume that, that you're not vandalizing or assaulting Jewish citizens of this country. You're not blaming Jews for every bad thing that's happened to our country. You're not denying that the Holocaust ever existed. I would hope and pray that you're not an anti-Semite. But I wonder if it is possible this morning that, that in the world in which you live, the things that you listen to, the things that you read, the, the things that you watch, the people you follow on social media, I wonder if it's possible that, that, that subtly or not so subtly, your views about the Jews are being shaped in an anti-Semitic, unbiblical fashion. Now, we've even read it this morning in Matthew. We read it in Peter's words in Acts chapter 2 and Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, explicitly that, that the Jews crucified and killed the Lord Jesus Christ by the hands of the Romans. 
But unfortunately, throughout church history, this fact, this truth, has led some professing believers to make applications that the apostles would never have made. Whether that manifests itself in pride toward the Jews, in suspicion of Jews, or, or even violence against Jews. Now, I realize that Mississippi is not a state that is known for a large population of, of Jews, of Israelites. Right? And so it's possible that, that you look around your circle of, of influence, your, your, your orbit, and you realize, I have no relationships right, with anyone who is Jewish by blood or by religion. Maybe you rarely ever think about Jews unless you're reading the Bible. Right? And so perhaps your attitude toward Jews, and the attitude of most Christians in Mississippi is not one of, of arrogance or aggression, but it's one of just apathy. Well, in our text this morning, as Paul begins to land the plane of Romans chapter 9 through 11, we learn here that our posture toward Jews should be neither arrogance, nor aggression, nor apathy, but rather it should be a humble and deliberate, intentional attractiveness. And we learn this from what Paul tells us in our text about God's plan for both Jew and Gentile and Paul's own purpose in light of God's plan. Now, as you know, Paul has been talking about Jews and Gentiles a lot throughout these chapters that we've been in in Romans. But as he, as he comes to a conclusion of this section, he's going to be talking about it a lot. So the next few sermons, we're going to be thinking about Jew and Gentile and the relationship between the two and the relationship between both to the Lord. Now, this is, as you perhaps know, a very difficult and, and disputed and debated portion of God's word. But my prayer is that whether you agree with my understanding of the text or not, right, that, that your heart will be filled with the same evangelistic zeal, the same theological awe that marks the Apostle Paul in these chapters. So I want us to see this morning, first, God's plan, second, Paul's purpose, and third, our posture. First, God's plan. If you've been with us these last few months, you know that uh, as we've been preaching Romans 9 through 11, Paul has been dealing with a, a very serious theological problem, right? He's been wrestling with this problem that the majority of Abraham's offspring, the majority of the Israelites, the Jews, have rejected God's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. As Paul has told us, they have pursued righteousness, but they pursued it by works rather than by faith in Jesus Christ. They've sought to establish their own righteousness rather than receiving the righteousness that comes from God as a gift, the righteousness that is outside of themselves. And here's the problem for Paul. If so many of the Jews, of his fellow countrymen, right, have not attained salvation, then does that mean that God has rejected his chosen people? Does that mean that, that God has broken his promises? Well, last week we saw when Pastor Dean opened up the beginning of Romans chapter 11, we saw Paul's answer to that question. I asked, and has God rejected his people? Paul says, by no means. Absolutely not. He says, though their apostasy is undeniable, God has not cast Israel away. 
Just like he preserved a remnant in the day of Elijah, so too in Paul's day, God had preserved a remnant of the Jewish people. It's a remnant, he says, chosen entirely by grace and therefore not on the basis of works because then grace would not be grace. It wouldn't be undeserved favor and a free gift. Rather, it would be merit. It would be earned and and deserved wages. Paul says God has not rejected Israel, but he has chosen to save a people from within the chosen people. Remember how he began this whole section? Not all Israel is Israel. Well, so then in verses 7 through 10, Paul sort of pauses and essentially gives a a summary of everything that he said to this point in, in Romans 9 and 10. What then, he writes, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, that is righteousness. It failed to attain it. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And then Paul quotes from all three sections of the Jewish Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings. He quotes from Deuteronomy in the law. He quotes from Isaiah in the prophets, and he quotes from the Psalms in the writings. And in these quotes, we see that this hardening upon Israel was foretold in the Old Testament. It was a judicial hardening. You see the word retribution used there. God was punishing Israel for their seeking righteousness according to their own works, for refusing to believe the good news about Jesus, for being disobedient and contrary, rebellious, as you see there in chapter 10, verse 21. He's punishing them for refusing to come to God when he held his hands out to them in Christ. And so Paul, quoting from from Isaiah and Moses and David, says, Look, God has given them over to their own sinful hearts. Doesn't that sound familiar from Romans chapter 1? He's given them over. He's given them a spirit of stupor, a spirit of spiritual insensitivity, of numbness, unfeelingness to the things of God. They're, They're under anesthetic, as it were. They have blind eyes. They have deaf ears. And so they've stumbled over the free grace of Jesus Christ. And so now we come to verse 11. And it's in this verse, in light of all that that Paul has said to this point, that we see the plan of God. And he he gives it to us in the form of a question. Or he he leads leads to it in this question, did they stumble in order that they might fall? He's asking, has Israel fallen and, and can never get up any longer? Has Israel fallen so that that's the end of their story? Was it all over for them? Was it the fact that these hardened Israelites, these hardened Jews, they're in a hopeless situation? God has completely cut them off and cast them aside forever. There's no hope for repentance. You see Paul's answer again, categorical, emphatic, absolutely not, by no means. And then he says God's plan. Here it is in verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Did you hear it? Did you hear the plan of God? First, Israel sins. They reject Jesus. Second, by their sin, by their stumbling, God has brought salvation to the Gentiles. Third, The plan of God is to use the salvation of the Gentiles 
to make Israel jealous. And so to bring elect Israelites to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, what you see mentioned there in verse 12 and 15, when the fullness of Israel is grafted back into the vine to steal an image from next week's sermon, there will be even more glorious blessing for all the people of God. Look at how Paul says it in verses 12 and 15. He says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion, literally their fullness, mean? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, Paul says in verse 15, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? You see, Paul is saying Israel stumbled, but that doesn't mean they fell over never to get up again. Rather, God has, has worked in the past good out of evil, using Israel's sin to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And he is working and will work good out of good, using the salvation of the Gentiles to bring salvation to the Jews. And ultimately, blessing to all God's people through the salvation of all the elect from Israel. Now, let's walk through this plan of God in a little bit more detail. First, Paul says that, that by Israel's sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, we, ju we just saw that, didn't we, in Matthew chapter 21, how Jesus foretold that that is what would happen. Right? But we also see it played out in the book of Acts, don't we? In Acts chapter 13, when Paul and, and Barnabas are in Pisidian Antioch, they go into a synagogue on a Jewish Sabbath day, Saturday, and they're invited to preach. They preach Jesus. Many of the Jews are converted. But on the next Saturday, when they go back, there's this huge crowd there waiting for them to hear the word of God. And Luke tells us that the Jews, probably meaning the Jewish leaders, the leadership amongst the Jewish people there in Pisidian Antioch, they begin to contradict and to malign Paul. And so this is what Luke says that Paul tells them. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And then Luke writes these, these words that hopefully are familiar to you. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So the Jews rejected eternal life. The Gentiles were brought to salvation. We, we see the same thing at the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28. Paul has come to Rome as a prisoner. The Jews gather to him and his house arrests, and they come to hear what he has to teach them. Luke tells us that from morning till evening, he expounded God's word to them. He testified to the kingdom of God. He tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced, Luke tells us, some disbelieved but they all leave after Paul quotes from Isaiah 6 about the hardening of Israel. And he says these words, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. That's how the book of Acts essentially ends. Israel rejecting God and Gentiles believing. And this was the plan of God. The rejection of the gospel by the Jews brought salvation to the Gentiles. That's the first step. What's the second step? Well, the second step is that the salvation of the Gentiles is designed by God to make Israel jealous. Now, maybe you hear that language and think, well, that's sinful, isn't it? 
Well, no, there is a godly jealousy spoken of throughout the scriptures in a variety of contexts. Paul says that, that God's overriding plan is to use the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke Jews to a godly jealousy. It's as if the gospel, like a bullet in the room, is, is ricocheting back and forth from the Gentiles back to the Jews. As the Jews see the Gentiles enjoying the blessings of the gospel that had been foretold and foreshadowed in all the administrations of the covenant of grace from Abraham and Moses and David and the new covenant and, and the prophets, as the Jews see Gentile believers, us, experiencing the forgiveness of sins through the Christ, who is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, as they see Gentiles like us experiencing the, the righteousness that comes by grace, reconciliation to God and to one another, and even to believers across all ethnic lines. As the Jews see Gentiles like us enjoying the joy and the peace and the hope that is found in the Holy Spirit, the promised spirit, then those Israelites who are Israelites indeed, the elect of God from the chosen people, this remnant, they will want what they see that we have. They will long for it. They will be jealous for it. And by the grace of God, their numbness, their, their stupor, right, their insensitivity to spiritual things will be removed. Their eyes will be opened. Their ears will be opened. And by grace, through faith, they will be saved. This is God's plan to provoke the Jews to jealousy through the Gentiles receiving the gospel. When I was in seminary, uh, around the time that I was dating my wife, Elizabeth, my roommate also started dating his future wife. Now, he had met her, he had fallen in love with her uh, when they had been fellow students at the University of Texas. And I'm pretty sure they dated in college. I'm forgetting all this, the details. Uh, but at some point, right, they went their separate ways. But he never forgot about her. And at some point in, in seminary, right, as I was starting to get to know Elizabeth, he heard that another guy, was pursuing this girl in Texas. And this, a switch was flipped. He's like, wait a minute. That's the girl I want to marry. Right? That's the girl that's going to be my wife, not that guy's wife. And so he literally drove over to Texas, sat down with her and said, we need to get married. Not this guy. You need to marry me. Now, I wish I'd like remembered and knew the whole story with all the details. Elizabeth might remember better than I'd about to ask her. But can you believe that? What courage, what boldness, but, but it was because he was provoked to jealousy. He said, wait a minute, I want what you have. I want her to be my wife. And so they're married today, right? He got her. That jealousy provoked him. And, and that's what Paul is, is saying here. That godly jealousy stimulated, spurred on through seeing the Gentiles come to faith. Which brings us to the next step. The next step in God's plan, you see there, is that when the fullness of Israel, when the full number of God's elect from Israel are grafted back into the olive tree of the people of God, then all of us will experience incredible and even more glorious blessing. Now, Paul doesn't say exactly what this blessing is, although in verse 15, he compares it to life from the dead. Right? It's a similar statement, though. That's what we find at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. 
when the author of the Hebrews says regarding us, current believers and the Old Testament saints, he says, God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. It's not until all the saints of God are gathered in together that the final blessing comes. Now, let me acknowledge this, and some of you may already be thinking this. Most commentators, even most Reformed Presbyterian commentators, would see in this plan of God that I've been walking through here in verse 11 and 12, they would see in this plan that Paul is prophesying of a great future in gathering of the Jews, a future large-scale conversion at the end of the age, right? The, 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 the fullness coming in all at once, soon before Jesus returns. That's the, the conventional way, a traditional way of understanding this passage. Now, and a part of the reason that, that folks understand it that way is because of uh, how they understand verses 25 and 26, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. But I would argue that O. Palmer Robertson, in his book, The Israel of God, is right to see that what Paul is talking about here in verses 11 and 12 and 15, this temporal sequence, is not something that Paul was thinking was going to happen way down at the very end of history, but rather it has happened. It, it, it is happening. It will happen throughout this present age. Now, is it possible? Is it desirable that there would be a large influx of Jewish believers at the end of the age? Absolutely. Don't hear me saying that, that I don't want that to happen. But my point is that I don't think, I'm not persuaded that that's what Paul is teaching in this text. And one of the main reasons that I, I don't think that that's what Paul is teaching is because of how Paul speaks of his own purpose in light of God's plan. So we've seen God's plan to bring salvation to the Gentiles through the sinning of the Jews and through the salvation of the Gentiles to bring salvation to the Jews and the salvation of the Jews will redound to fullness of glory, fullness of blessing upon God's people. So but what is Paul's purpose, secondly, in response to this plan of God? Well, you see it there in verses 13 and 14. When Paul says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some of them. For, because, and then he goes on to quote what we've seen in verse 15. And, and just again, look at that last phrase. What will the acceptance of God of the Jews mean but life from the dead? Do you see what Paul is saying? Look, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. My, my predominant ministry and mission, I've been sent primarily to speak the gospel to the nations. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it through all of his letters. But what he's telling us here is that in light of God's plan to save Israel as well as to save sinners from among the Gentiles, Paul's ministry to the Gentiles isn't just about the Gentiles. You see, Paul's ministry to the Gentiles has a, a deeper purpose, a more foundational purpose, that is to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Paul's purpose is in line with God's plan he wants to, to make the Jews jealous of all the saving benefits that the Gentiles are experiencing so that some of them might be saved as well, so that they might be accepted by God, that his ministry, through his ministry, the elect Jews are brought to saving faith. And so Paul says he magnifies his ministry. He glorifies it. That, that is, he, he, he speaks highly of what God has called him to do in bringing 
the, the gospel to the Gentile nations so that the Jews hear and some are provoked. Some are brought to saving faith. He knows that God is fulfilling his plan to bring Jews to saving faith, even as he brings Gentiles to saving faith. And I would argue that we see that emphasis throughout the rest of chapter 11. Look at, at verse 23. Paul's affirming that if the Jews don't continue in their unbelief, God has the power to graft them back into the olive tree of the people of God from which they were broken off for their unbelief. So Paul, again, is focusing on the present tense reality of Jews being brought into the people of God. And then in verses 30 and 31, notice how Paul summarizes God's plan here once more. He says, For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Now, in the present age. God's plan has unfolded throughout the history of the church. As redeemed Gentiles induce Jews to jealousy, and the elect are brought to saving faith and are shown mercy now. And look, we have two examples, even in our own church. Do you realize that Rob Walzer and Howard Graylin, they are Jews who were brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So, Howard, wave your hand. People don't see Howard. He's up there in the sound booth, right? <laughs> you probably see Rob more often. Sometimes he prays, like last week he prayed, right? But did you know that, that these brothers are a fulfillment of the plan of God even here in Romans chapter 11. In God's providence, in large part through their relationship with other Christians, Gentile Christians, they were brought to saving faith. So Paul's purpose was not merely to see Gentiles come to Jesus. That was the priority of his ministry. But below that, underneath that, there's a sense in which an even higher priority an even more intentional concern of his is to provoke his fellow Jews to jealousy so that they might be saved as well. And that brings us to the last point. If this is God's plan, if this is Paul's purpose, then it must be our posture as well. Again, look at verse 13. Paul makes explicit that he is speaking particularly to Gentiles. I'm speaking to you Gentiles, he says. It's likely that the Roman church at this time had a lot more Roman Gentile believers than it had Jewish believers. But there were Jewish believers among them, as we'll see in later chapters in this book. And Paul probably knew that they were wondering, maybe like you've been wondering over the last couple of months, why are we spending so much time talking about the Jews? Why are we spending so much time talking about relationship between Jew and Gentile? See, Paul wants them to know God's plan. He wants them to know his own purpose, not merely out of an intellectual or theological curiosity, but that they might make this plan, this purpose, their own. That you, the people of God, would be transformed by what you read here in the passage. That the way you relate to Jews would be different. Look down, again, we're sort of stealing from next week's sermon, but look down at verse 18 and 20. Notice that the Gentiles to whom Paul is writing in Rome were being tempted to arrogance and to pride, Paul tells us, toward the Jews. And Paul is writing because he doesn't want them to give in to this pride. He wants them, he wants you 
to have a posture, not of pride, but of humility. But it's also a posture of deliberate, intentional attractiveness to all the lost, but especially to the Jews. You ought to desire to provoke Jews to jealousy, shining your light before all the nations, that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this text, it forces us to ask this question, do you want Jews to be saved? Do you want the children of Abraham by blood or those who have become Jewish by religion? Do you want them to know the Lord Jesus Christ? If their fullness means even more riches to the Gentiles, if their acceptance by God means life from the dead, how can you not want this, right? But what this means is that you will live in such a way as to provoke and to spur them to jealousy. You will live an attractive life, an intentionally attractive life. Now, we see this in other places of God's word, don't we? In Titus chapter 2, Paul says that, that we are to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. We're to make it beautiful. We're to make it attractive in the way that we live our lives around the lost. Or think of 1 Peter chapter 3 when he's speaking to a believing wife who has an unbelieving husband or a husband who maybe is a Christian but is disobedient to the word. How is she to win him? She's to win him without a word through her respectful and chaste living, her conduct, right? We are to live the gospel and make it beautiful in the ways that we live around unbelievers. Paul goes on and doesn't he, or Peter goes on in 1 Peter 3 to say, look, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in your heart and always be ready to give a reason, an answer, an account for the hope that is in you. But do it, he says, with gentleness and with respect, keeping a good conscience. See, he's saying, your posture toward the lost should be a posture that would woo them, that would win them, that would provoke them to jealousy. This is how we're called to live before all unbelievers, but particularly for the point that Paul's making here, before the Jews, so that they might be saved, so that they might be added to the number of elect Jews who make up the fullness of God's remnant from Israel. We've heard of Paul speak in these two chapters, haven't we? Chapter 9, verse 2, he, he speaks of the great sorrow the unceasing anguish in his heart because so many Jews have rejected the gospel, the great privileges that they had. They refused to come to Jesus. We, we saw in chapter 10, verse 1, that Paul's desire, his heart's desire, his prayer to God was that his fellow Jews would be saved. And as we've looked at those texts, we've sought to make application to you in all your spheres of influence, right? That this is the way you ought to, to, to think and the posture you ought to have regarding everyone who doesn't know Jesus. But today, I want you to, to make the very specific application specifically to the Jews in your life. Now, maybe again, you, you, you raise your hand and you say, wait a minute, Caleb, we live in Mississippi. I don't know any Jews. I bet you know more than you realize. Howard and I were, were talking about this the other day, and he was saying that, look, most Jews are not vocal about their faith, in part, right, because they've seen all the anti-Semitism that exists in America, right? They, they probably know the stats that the FBI has that in 2020, nearly 60% of, of all religious hate crimes were oriented toward Jews. And so theirs is not necessarily an overt evangelistic sort of religion, right? 
So it could well be that you live by and you work with Israelites, Jews, but you don't know it. I know as I've thought about my own life that on Thursdays when I go play pick up Ultimate Frisbee, the Jewish rabbi from Beth Israel Congregation, right, the building right next to the former Trinity Presbyterian Church, he plays with me, right? I know that my cousin married a, a Jew. I know that I've had, you know, a conversation with Russ Roberts, who's a Jewish economist and podcaster, right? There's, we all have people who are Jews by blood or by religion in our life. And Paul is saying, are you praying for their salvation? Are you speaking to them? of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the word of God? Are you seeking to make them jealous by your experience of the gospel promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah? Brothers and sisters, go and preach the gospel to the lost, to the Jews around you. But let me warn you, how to begin this sermon. Are you an anti-Semite? Let me warn you that it could be even today and maybe down the road where if you preach the gospel to the Jews, you'll be accused of being an anti-Semite. You're trying to convert them. Yes, yes, we are. We desire as many as the Lord might call to himself to be brought in to the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Call me what we will. If I'm preaching Christ, if I'm proclaiming him, Right? If you are speaking to your friends, your neighbors, even your family members right, about the love of God in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, right, you will be persecuted. But fear not, Jesus says. Right? Fear not what they might do to you. Continue to speak, continue to live, continue to live in a, a humble, attractive life so that all that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world will be brought to saving faith, that the fullness of of the Jews might come in. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, difficult as it is in places, yet Lord, we thank you that you have unfolded for us in this passage what you are doing. Lord, would you help us to think bigger than ourselves, to think outside of ourselves. Lord, would you help us to have boldness and courage and humility and intentionality as we go forth into the world. Lord, help us to have our eyes open. Help us to, to take the initiative in conversations with people, Lord, that we might discover where folks are spiritually. Lord, we pray particularly this day for the Jews, for those who would claim an adherence to the, the faith of Abraham. Lord, we understand on the basis of your scriptures that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the culmination, the climax, the fulfillment of the faith of Abraham. Lord, we pray that we might live in such a way that Jews, even here in Mississippi, the small number that are here, Lord, would be provoked to jealousy, would delight to hear the glorious good tidings that the same work that you've done in the heart of Rob, Walter, and Howard Grayland, Lord, you would do in others, and that you would build your church, that you would grow your kingdom. Father, that your people, your people of old, that some of them would no longer be hardened, but would have their eyes open to see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.